1: Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. There are some who refer to millennials as entitled, avocado-eating layabouts who care more about their social media presence than engaging with and caring about the world around them. And then there are we millennials. We like to soothe our sorrow at never being able to afford a mortgage even if we didn't eat avocados by eating avocados. So who deserves sympathy and, crucially, the state support? Is it the older generation or the younger? Our panel for Generation Wars, part two, features Labour MP Diane Abbott, economist Anatole Koletski, people's peer Victor Adebowali, and momentum campaigner Joe Todd. Tom Clark hosts.
2: So, Generations Wars 2, this is because in 2011, when there might have been something a little bit up looking at the riots that engulfed British cities in that year, in a forward thinking uh, frame of mind, um, the How the Light Gets In festival staged a thing called Generation Wars, which was seen as rather hyperbolic at that time. It's almost received wisdom now, and there keep being new studies and reports that are finding huge differences between. Um, the generations um, on different measures. This um, big, chunky, authoritative report by the Resolution Foundation came out a week or two ago. You might have seen it in the news because it resorted to the recommendation of giving 10 grand to everyone on their 25th birthday because things had got so unequal. But there's an amazing range of evidence on different things, commuting times, how much space you've got in your house, how likely you are to get out of bed and vote, how likely you are once you're out of bed and voting to vote for Brexit or not. You're much less likely to vote for Brexit. If you're young, much less likely to vote for Theresa May, much uh, more likely to have a long journey to work and much less likely than people in the generation before to own a house by the time you're 30, 35 or even increasingly 40. So there's more evidence in more and more fronts. But the real question we're going to try and dig into today is whether it's right to think of this as a divide between the generations or something that might work itself out over time. So first up, I'm gonna introduce um, Diane, who's being held to three minutes sharp. (laughs) Okay.
3: um I have to admit to begin with that I think, tentatively this is, that I think this notion of intergenerational conflict is somewhat overhyped. But I do think that some of the issues raised as matters of intergenerational conflict are really the consequence of a whole series of political decisions which people actually voted for. Let me quote. Housing is the first of the social services. It's also one of the keys to increased productivity, work, family life, health and education are all undermined by crowded houses. Who said that? Clement Attlee, no. Harold Wilson, no. Harold Macmillan, the then Tory Minister for Housing, who built 300,000 houses a year. And he said that and it was seen as a middle of the road position because housing was then seen as a collective good which society had some responsibility to provide. We turned in the Thatcher years and the new labor years to seeing housing as a mark of social status, to seeing something which were primarily provided by the market. And of course, if you move away from collective responsibility to ensure that everyone has decent housing and you turn to market-based solutions you find yourself in the situation we are today whereas young people in london and other other high-priced cities cannot actually from their own means contemplate buying a house at all in the near future. That is not a question of intergenerational conflict. That is a question of people turning to the market and neoliberalism, moving away a collective notion of providing what ought to be broadly a public good. So I'm not saying there isn't intergenerational conflict, but I think that what you're often talking about is class conflict in which the out terms are, are measurable in terms of age, but fundamentally it's about politics and it's about people perhaps at the beginning of the Thatcher years, not really realizing that if you turn, if you say, as Mrs. Thatcher did, no such thing as society, then there are elements in society that will suffer and at the present time. It's young
2: people. Thank you. Thanks, Diane. <laughs> so we've had Diane, uh, explain why there might be intergenerational conflict, but really most of what we think of as intergenerational conflict um, it comes down to failures in public policy and uh, issues between the haves and have-nots. Anatole, explain why you think that's wrong.
4: I think it is uh, It is profoundly wrong, especially as we look ahead uh, to the next 50 years as opposed to back to the last century. There's. Endless amounts of economic data about the amount that governments spend on the old people versus young, and so on. But what I want want to consider is what is the impact on the role of government of this very very rapid shift towards an aging not just society but above all an aging electorate. And I think we should start off by thinking about what are the really fundamental goals of government in any society and they're basically threefold. One, to protect the status quo in the sense of protect people's lives, protect people's property, protect the culture and this has always been true in any structured society. Secondly to redistribute those resources according to law as opposed to brute force so that you know if our society changes it changes through a legal structure rather than through mere violence and thirdly to expand the society in various ways, either through territory in the past or trade or technology. And that's been you know the history of humanity over the last you know thousands of years of civilization. Over the last hundred years or so the expansion part of that has diminished in importance basically since, since the, the uh, Second world War. The protection of status quo has essentially been achieved. you know most people at least in our advanced societies re- lead reasonably secure and stable lives in the sense that their lives are not threatened. They're not threatened by starvation. And that leaves the last role and most important role of government, which is to redistribute the resources that exist at society, uh, not just in terms of wealth, but educational opportunities, and so on and so forth. Now, the interesting thing about that is that the 20th century was basically about the redistribution of resources according to a class struggle between those who owned property and those who didn't, you know, between the capitalists and the workers. That remains a big factor, but it's a much smaller factor today numerically than the redistribution of resources between those who are working and those who are not, namely the very young and the very old. What has happened and what is about to happen is that the shift of of non-working population is moving from children to old people. Until 50 years ago, the vast majority of the non-working population were people under 15, under 16 in the next 50 years it is going to be overwhelmingly people over 60. And what happens therefore is that you get a state which is increasingly directing resources towards people who are, n- who are not working but retired as opposed to not working but preparing themselves to contribute to society. So we are moving towards essentially a more and more parasitical society and in fact the old are more parasitical on society, even than the capitalist class and the rentiers with whom uh, Marxism was, was engaged. And I think that's what perhaps in the next stage we should discuss, what the impact of that is going to be on culture, on the economy, and on the very a sustainability of democracy and I'll come back to that.
2: Thank you for that analysis which was not short on drama. Um, I'm going to go to uh, Victor next who has I think a, a more nuanced take on some of this.
5: Well I've got to haven't I because if I, if I don't <laughs> I'm buggered really from the start. Um, well, I mean it's, I, I love listening to economists but the fact of the matter is if I was to say to you, I, I live in London and, and um, I travel the country quite a lot, I, I work for lots of organisations and what I've noticed is the government's job might be to resolve inequality and redistribution. But if I was to ask the question, how are we doing? I don't think we're doing a very good job of it. And that's the point. It might be their job, but they're not doing a very good job of it. And the young people are, I think, victims of that. But of course, the, the nuance on this is it depends on which young person you are, right? So if, you're, if you look like me, and you're walking down the street in London or any of our major conurbations, probably around here as well actually, you're at least six times more likely to be stopped and searched than if you look like um, you, cool beard, right? And further, furthermore, you are 13 times more likely to be met with violence as a result of that interaction. And if you behave in a way that isn't seen as normative, and normative being sane, right, you're more likely to end up in what's called a Section 136 unit, and in some cases, that might end up in your death. However, if you are the son of, I don't know, just pick somebody wealthy, right, yeah, who can... <laughs> yeah, wealthier, um, who, can afford, who can afford to buy six properties, not only will you pay less tax than the person who's got one flat and rents it out, but you can give that to your kid. So, I think inequality is probably more important than the generation war, but this. I don't really like the word war, because I think young people have a purpose, and their purpose is to talk about the things we're all afraid to talk about. The young, and the reason why there's a perception of a war, there's never been a war between, you know, the the odd riot in, in this country isn't the same as what happens in, I don't know, even Nigeria or Lagos. Young people, Have always and have absolutely the right to be sceptical of everything that anyone over the age of 50 does. Why? Because they're the ones that are going to build the future, right? I'm not at war with with any young person actually. I have every confidence in young people because 75% of them voted to remain but we're still leaving, right? No, 75% of them voted to remain. they're going to inherit a future created by a bunch of people who actually think there's a war. (laughs) There isn't. They're the ones that create the cool look, the music, they're the ones that most of us are going to rely on for the future. And just a point about Anatoly's statement. The presumption is that the young people are unnaturally going to fight, there's going to be a war, and you're going to take over the government. I hope there isn't a war, because what I hope happens is that through the natural processes of most democracies, you end up holding the reins of power. I mean, prime ministers have generally got younger over the last, right? There's an the exception that proves the rule in, in, in Mrs May. But actually, you're going to have power. You're going to run things differently and hopefully with more hope and more creativity. And that will benefit everybody.
2: Fantastic. Victor, thank you. A nice, uh, cheerful note. Um, and now, young person. <laughs> over to you. Is there a war or not?
0: Um, is there a war or not? Yeah, of course, but it's not between the, between the different generations. The whole framing of this debate is, I mean, maybe not absurd, but it's 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 not correct. And the idea that we can like accurately look at society through the kind of like frame of generations, it's it's not the case. I mean, it's already been pointed out, like the idea of the generation is an incredible stereotype you know you see all these like column inches wasted on talking about millennials and how we eat avocados and do these like weird things in parts of east london etc cetera, etc cetera. but if you think about your like ideal millennial in your head they're probably uh white they probably work in uh, a certain set of professions they probably have a certain relationship to technology their visa immigration status is probably fine and this doesn't represent everybody or even the majority of people in my generation so like number one like these these generation as sociological category is like an obvious stereotype but more than that and I and loads of people don't know this and I only know this because I read up for this debate this whole idea of generation as a category was part of this political project so you know there's this uh, book called Generations written in 1991 by uh, Howe and Strauss and they basically set out to Reconceptualize society, not looking at it through a paradigm of class, and these generations that had these like fixed sets of uh, ways of being, acting in the world, um, etc. etc. Although they like posited it as like an objective sociological category, they also were like really quite open about it being a political project. They, you know, they said in the book, We think Americans need a new way of conceiving of society, of like interpreting meaning and working out what is going on. And they decided on this generational frame. And my, you know, my number one critique of it would be that it's a massive stereotype. But number two, and I think this is the big one really, is that like, it really does individualise what are essentially systemic problems. And I think this came through in, in, in what you said, you know, like it, it, it ends up pitching people who are from the same family against each other, and me against my grandma, for things that are happening that are obviously not my grandma's fault. And I mean, and that is my, that's my like, go-to phrase when I'm working this out at the moment. It's like, okay, my brother's struggling to get a job because of deindustrialization in the north. Is this my grandma's fault? Okay. Right. <laughs> Obviously not. So you see, you see what I'm saying? There's lots more I'd say about like, social attitudes and stuff. I think that what we saw happen in Ireland with the repeal of the eighth and the overwhelming majority of the repeal of the eighth was absolutely fantastic. What's even more interesting about it is nine out of ten young people voted yes which is like obviously a huge majority. There are like attitudinal shifts with regards to generations that are really important to chart and I think that's always been the case with generations. But when you're talking about like this specific economic dynamic and the idea that I should revile my grandparents rather than the super rich because they had a better life than me, I think that's completely wrong and really like absolutely the wrong way to look at it. And not, yeah, it won't work towards productive society at all.
2: Right. Well, we've got a good thanks, uh, <laughs> Joe. Uh, a good um, range of, of, of very <laughs> different views there. I mean, <laughs> let's let's just try and like think about this from the perspective of the older generation. There will be some people who you know, I see it in my own family. You get we raise questions like, is it really fair that we've just abolished educational maintenance allowance, which was the thing that triggered those riots in two thousand and eleven, and then pensions whether they're well-to-do or not, which historically they are. They've still got their bus pass. But Diane, I mean, what do you think of that as a way of looking at it? Is there another way of looking at it, which is to say the older generation li- lived through a time when life was harder, when people generally had uh, less money than they do now and not have now genre, got to where, well, not this generation. We didn't. We didn't. live, we live didn't. in a, lived in a, a period really where okay. for the
5: first time, actually, <laughs> for the first time, my son is likely to be poorer <laughs> than I am. Right. That's, that's just a fact, isn't it? So it's like
2: Well, I mean if you're thinking of someone sorry. who's 70, like the, the people you know there wasn't foreign travel, there wasn't iPhones, there wasn't and there also there was less disposable income. I'm I'm thinking someone who's 70 or 80 might think I worked very hard for a long time. What on earth do I owe to the young? What do you say to, to, to that if you encounter it then?
3: That's not an argument that I accept. I think clearly older people are entitled to economic stability, a a reasonable standard of living. But that's to do with the notion of the welfare state. And let me say this about the welfare state. It is much derided. Even some people in my own party used to deride it. But the point about a welfare state is it's a state which provides you with care and support when you are most vulnerable. And you may be most vulnerable when you're a young person with young children, or you may be most vulnerable when you're older. You may be most vulnerable when you're ill. You may be most vulnerable when you are unemployed. But what has been deeply problematic about the attacks and undermining of the welfare state is it does leave some groups of people exposed and vulnerable but I don't believe in this old versus the young narrative. It's like to take a very narrow thing in teaching, because they're cutting back on teachers' pensions now there's a narrative that says, oh it's because all these old teachers get big pensions that's why we have to give you young teachers small pensions. That's absurd, it's because they don't want to pay to give teachers decent pensions overall setting old against young is not the solution to anything. A fairer society and support. And funding the welfare state is the answer to some things.
2: Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses, and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports, and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe, and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Anatole, where you come from is that there are choices there that, that can't be ducked, isn't it? Uh,
4: well, I'm, I'm really surprised at this conversation because... I thought, Joe, you in particular would probably almost describe yourself as a Marxist. And maybe, maybe <laughs> Diane, you might describe yourself as one of the more sort of traditional type of welfare state socialists. Now I'm, I'm going to put a Marxist traditional socialist position to you and there, there are two points. Nye Bevan famously said socialism is the language of priorities. Of course the welfare state exists to support those who are vulnerable but it has to prioritize and the pr- clear priorities of the welfare state not just under the Tory government for the last but for the last 30 years has been as Tom says to prioritize the old at the expense of the young and no, particularly no. the most vulnerable. You. No, you'll just look, p- spending, just look at government spending. Look what's happened to pension say. spending. I'm what not I saying that's right, but that's what's state happened.
3: exist to support us all yeah. at the point in our life yeah. when we are vulnerable. But but, but okay, it can't okay, give okay, us listen. all
4: all the support <laughs> we want. So the question is at the margin. Does it favor does it give more support to the old and or to the young? And the answer to that over the last 30 years has been very clearly. Now, I'm even more Surprise with you, Joe, as a Marxist, talking about this being <laughs> some kind of self-defined. I mean, I right yeah, all right. Ta- <laughs> talking about this thing of the caricature and so on. What Marx ta- ta- taught us, and I am an un- an unreconstructed Marxist in this sense, that the most fundamental distinction of in society comes through the relationship of groups of people to the means of production. Mm -hmm. Now what is the clearest possible, there's nothing caricature or or, or, or subjective about this, what is the clearest possible distinction in our society? It's between those who work and those who do not work and live off the incomes and resources generated by those who work. The non-workers versus the workers is the essential conflict in society and always has been. The big change between the 19th century and the 21st century is that the non-workers who mattered in the 19th century were the capitalist classes, the so-called owners of capital. The non-workers who matter in the 21st century are the retired, they're not the young because the young are being prepared to be workers, they are the retired who are no longer making a contribution and will not make any further contribution, society. It doesn't mean they should be abandoned. It doesn't mean they should be allowed to starve. But it does raise the question of whether they should have a higher priority in the resources that society, that the workers in society, are generating okay. than the than the than the young. Do you, Anatolvo, yeah.
2: put um, individual responsibility on the older generation? to do something about it? I don't know, to gift a chunk of the house over to the kids? er No,
4: again, as a Marxist, I would say it's up to society to ensure that, to take those resources away from the old, if only through taxation, through inheritance taxes, but also through abolishing things like free bus passes for people like me uh, and the the triple lock
0: and redirect income that way.
2: Let's hear from... uh, who
0: who is now definitely a Marxist, apparently. Although um, well, pro- probably am, probably am. I mean, I, I agree with you. Your uh, relationship to the means of production is the, you know, defining characteristic of whether you are uh, on one side or the other. Um, I just don't. I do not take the point in a world with like increased capital cum- accumula- accumulation at the top, um, with uh, an increasingly kind of like divorced class of super rich individuals. Um, you can call them the 1%, 0.1%, whatever, whatever like category you want to ascribe to them. When we know that is happening, and we know capital is accumulating that like that, it is an obviously distracting frame. It is an obvious way of trying to turn our attention elsewhere to say, hang on, actually the disagreement is between pensioners and millennials. Like, it's just incredibly obvious when you have, like, loads of pensioners who are, like, barely getting by, yeah. you know? Loads of pensioners who rely on the NHS and public services, like I do. I mean, it's really striking when you see in uh British social Attitude survey, they have the priorities of, like, you know, what do young people care about, what do old people care about? The top three things are, uh, I think it was health, public services, and schooling. Like, it's exactly the same three things. The second highest concern of 18 to 32-year-olds is social care for the elderly. It's absolutely not the case that this generational war is going on. It's absolutely not the case that there is no, there is like a statistical basis for it. Like the idea that pensioners are more of a problem than the super rich, and it's. But there are. Look, at the, numbers, obvious, look, look at the numbers. Look at the numbers. Look
4: at look at the share of national income consumed by pensioners. And there is no. You couldn't even make any but impact so, on but that but by taking good there. But if you took all the money away from the no, super no, 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 rich. No, no, no. It wouldn't this, really make any a, difference. But, but there's a social good there. I
0: want I want pensioners to receive a pension because people. should, live a dignified life when they're old. I don't, I, don't, I don't actually care if the super rich lose 90% of their income because they have far too
5: much.
2: All right, Victor? I was just, yeah,
5: I mean, th- this is the problem. I think the, what we've just seen here is the problem of, of positing this question as a war. You know, What we've seen here is, the, is a necessary dialogue, effectively, between generations. Um, the answer to your question, what do the old or the young, uh, is, is they owe them a future, frankly. And in delivering on that promise, um, they owe them the the space to develop that future and to create it. I, I don't think I've, I, I have no argument with Anatoly about. Uh, wealth, uh, wealth distribution. I think most reasonable people w- wouldn't. Except the they're old except always vote against it. That's well, the trouble. Well, <laughs> well, be, yeah, but the, 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 they're, they're old for a short period, and then they die, and they're replaced by the young. I mean, it's just a sad fact, right? And, and I think, and I think, and I think, what's, what's going what's to happen? I mean, uh, you know, on, on Brexit, for instance, I, I think you know, 75% of young people voted to remain. At some point, and you know, they're, they're going to they're have the vote, um, and they're going to realise that actually, it's a really Stupid idea, and they're going to they're going to do something else now. So, so, so I think that the dialogue between the, t- the between the generations is the critical thing here. And and by the way, you know, one of the interesting things about wealth distribution these days is that it's not all in the hands of the wealthy. I mean, I think Joe's uh, absolutely right. You look at the look at the chap who runs Facebook. Right? He's not he's not forty yet. There is a question that's not just that's why I think just positing it in this way doesn't really get us there. What we we really want to be doing is getting into, so how do we have the dialogue between the generations that creates a future for the young? Because that's at the end of the day, that's who's gonna be looking after me and you.
2: Let's each have two minutes each on solutions. I mean, there there are differences in terms of the type of pensions people have, in in terms of the fact that pensioners are used to be, overwhelmingly, you know, the people in the workhouse are now no more likely to be poor than the average.
5: And things, things have changed. Do you know what the average pension is, actually? Just to be clear, if you work in public services, your average pension is about 7000 a year. That's not, you know, you're not rocking and rolling on that. You know what I mean? <laughs> you're certainly not turning up here on that kind of, you know. Okay. So we, I, I just think we need to be a bit careful about some of the general statements that, that we're making. It's, it's quite a sophisticated picture.
2: All right, let's have a minute on, on solutions, if we think they're needed, or you can say they're not needed. Diane, for you first.
3: We need a fairer society. We certainly need a measure of redistribution. And what we certainly shouldn't be doing is framing is essentially a problem about politics and class politics as one, as some dispute between the old and the young and just finally I have an old person's bus pass and you will
2: take it from my cold dead hat <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very good
4: yeah. Well there you go. are
2: Let's go across this way this time and then we will come to the audience Just one minute Victor on what you would, the young o- uh, erode a future, how do you give it to them? One brain
5: Well o- they are a voice, um, we should listen to them. The, the, the thing that you can't have a shortcut to is experience. So when I talk to young people, I, I, I offer them silence and hope and some experience, basically, because they're going to be running the place. Secondly, we owe them a, a more sophisticated argument. One of, the most, one of the worst things that a politician ever said to me was that, basically, the, the public, the people, want things simplifi- simplified. And I said, no, they want you to introduce complexity. That's what they want. So we need a more sophisticated debate than just uh, young versus old, that's not going to work. And thirdly, we need to protect those things that the young people need in order that they can grow old with wisdom. Free education I think is absolutely necessary I think we should listen to them about the kind of education they need. I, I know people that are going to be doing fourteen exams in two weeks and then we wonder about the increase in mental health. So but actually if we talk to the young people, they tell you that they want to learn, they can learn, and how they need to learn in order that they can provide a future for us for us all.
2: Okay. Very good. Okay, well, I
4: I I agree I agree completely with Victor that this should not be a battle, but it should be a debate, a conversation, and an attempt to compromise between the interests of the workers and the interests of the rentiers, if you like, through society. The mechanism that we have all grown up to believe in for that debate is democracy. The problem is that the aging of society is actually distorting and distorting really radically that mechanism of democracy in exactly the way, Victor, that you described. What we are finding is that more and more rapidly, older people are voting against redistribution of income they're voting for the preservation of their wealth both in p- in the private sector and in the so what do you do uh, and it? in and and in the role that that they have uh, in society and so on so so what do you do about it uh, uh, and that is going to increase that's going to accelerate societies are becoming more conservative certainly british society is becoming more conservative and you say
2: marxist anatole yeah. that
4: you just say that these historical no, forces yeah, are going to no, keep going no, no, yeah <laughs> exactly so so well so frankly i I, th- I think that you know there's there's one of three things that might happen. One is the old people may decide that they have a duty to society and not just to themselves and may change their voting patterns. That looks increasingly unlikely. The second thing is that uh, democracy may have to be restructured in order to reduce the role of people over 65 who are outside or increase the role of the young. Now, one way to do that, which would be very, very logical, would be to give children a vote, not by lowering the voting age to 12 or 10 or something, but to give parents votes for their children. This is something that has been seriously discussed. Yeah, so anybody who has three children has four votes instead of one vote or or divided between the parents. People laughed, you know, you've all laughed today, 200 years ago, people would laugh the same way if I said, give votes to women. No. Or no. give no. votes no. to... W- give. Yes, they would. And the third thing is that democracy itself may fail, and we may find that the democratic societies, which are increasingly dominated by the very short-term selfish interests of the old, are overwhelmed by non-democratic societies, such as China, such as perhaps Russia, such, you know, d- by authoritarian societies, where you have political structures that are willing and crucially able to think about the long-term future of their society yep. rather than just the interests of individuals who have 5, Thank 10 you. years to Thank live. Thank
2: you very, very much. Um, Joe, um, uh, <laughs> Anatole's proposal there I think would be helpful uh, to, to to your side of the island politics at the moment, in the sense that young families would get extra votes. We know from everything we know about the last election that that Labour would have done better on that count. I don't know if that and means Brexit you want to happened. comment on it or if you'd rather propose a different solution. But well, either I'd, way, well, I'd say
0: I'd say that the Labour Party at the moment is trying to do what it thinks should be done for society and what will make a better society, rather than is what politi- is what is always politically advantageous. Um, so it's not it's not really the calculus in which we things. I mean, everything you just said is still still based on this frame of like, you know, it's been a zero sum uh, a zero sum relationship between the interests of pensioners and the uh, interests of young people, which I think we've gone over and over <laughs> and said that we really don't said that we really don't accept. Um, I mean, with regards to like actual solutions, there there are the obvious ones about, you know, we can bring in more money that can be spent on better public services via taxation so we don't have this like silly dichotomy between young people and old people. But I think there's also like social solutions too. I find some of my most interesting and also fulfilling interactions to be with people of a different generation. And it is the case now that fewer and fewer people are living in what they call like intergenerational neighborhoods, so where you've got people who are under the age of 18, but also over the age of 65, living on the same street. Yeah. Um, I don't know what specific policies you would put in place to like solve a problem like that. Well, but I did, I did well, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, okay. building some decent affordable <laughs> houses, no, put would hands up be a bad start. If you're over 50 and you don't um, want housing for your kids, um, but, like, but, 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 solving there's like I think there's like a social issue there as well, which we like really haven't yeah. talked about because we've got so stuck on the economic um, that that needs to be needs to be sorted too.
2: There is, I saw something just last week about how people are sorting into different sorts of neighborhoods, with cities, inner cities getting younger and smaller towns getting older.
0: On one side, yeah, I think it's about having more mixed communities where uh, there are older and younger people living in the same places. I also think it's about having less precarious existence so you can actually spend more time with your families. I, because I work a lot, etc., etc., and I can't afford the trains to go home to Yorkshire, don't actually see my family that much.
2: Terrific. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> Thanks to all four of our panelists for
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. So, what do you think? Let us know by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our times.